tennis fans, and welcome to another edition of the South Boss Slice. I'm Ben Lewis, joined alongside Mike McIntyre. Well, the red dirt, high-soaring bouncing balls, acrobatic slides, and endurance rallies are officially upon us. Yes, it is the clay court season now underway as the ATP has its Masters 1000 from Monte Carlo, and we move into the second block of the tennis calendar. On the women's side, Fed Cup action is nearing, and Canada is prepping for a matchup with the Czech Republic. Hardcore tournaments for now are in the rear view mirror, and our special guest on the program, he's been covering the sport since the 1970s, writer for Tennis Canada, one of the very best, Tom Tebbit, is with us this week. Before we uh, delve into the clay and uh, touch on Fed Cup as well for Canada, maybe we can start actually this time, Tom, with a little bit uh, about your background and, and how you actually got into covering tennis and what it was like maybe back when you were a rookie reporter then in the 1970s and how much it's changed now. Um, well, I guess it's totally changed. Um, I was out of college and worked in actually worked in the film business for a while just as a assistant director, production assistant sort of stuff. And I was interested in tennis. I started playing tennis. I loved tennis. I enjoyed playing, and I wanted to come and see the Canadian Open tournament. I lived in Montreal at the time, and um, the Canadian Open was in 1974. Was in Toronto. Uh, went around to a few papers. I got a, just got a guy's business card. He wrote on the back of it, "Please extend press privileges to Tom Tebbit." I handed it to the tournament director here in Toronto, and I had a press pass for the week. And Bjorn Borg was there. Jimmy Connors was there. Chris Everett was there. Uh, it wouldn't quite be so easy today. So that was the beginning, and obviously you make contacts there, and one thing leads to another. Well, there you go. Uh, fast forward now to 2019, and I think the entire landscape obviously has changed in terms of tennis in, in this country. And we, we look at the year that it has been uh, for Canadians and such an astonishing breakthrough year for so many faces. It seems like we're getting a fresh story every week, wherever we turn, whether it's uh, Bianca Andreescu winning Indian Wells, Felix Ojealiasim in, in a final in Rio, Braden Schnurr making a run in New York. I, I know for some of these players, at least like Felix and Dennis, maybe we had an expectation of, of great success coming, but could you have envisioned anything like this to begin the year for Canada as a tennis nation? Um, no. I mean, I don't think anybody could. So, But, I mean, we all saw uh, Dennis coming, and we all, we've all seen Felix coming. Uh, Bianca, I think, as well. Um, but I think, you know, she had so many injuries last year, and I think in 2016 she had a, a stress fracture in her foot or something was out for like six months. So she never had a chance to build up the momentum that Dennis and Felix did. So it wasn't quite as easy to see her coming. But, I mean, um, Felix, to have the big breakthrough he's had this year has, has really been quite surprising in the sense of how quickly it happened, but not the fact that it happened. Uh, that, that's not a really big surprise. And Dennis, as much as people may be almost a little bit disappointed, he's, he's maintained extremely well and to be 20 um training the world and, and 20 years old today uh, that's still a great place to be in terms of you know how we can build on that for the future tom do you remember a year uh you know going back that, that even comes close to matching the level of excitement that uh, canadian tennis fans are feeling in the first quarter of, of 2019 well, not in the first quarter, but obviously 2014 when you, you know, you had Milo Shake in the semis at Wimbledon and Genie in the final. Um, we'd never had anything like that. And, and still, and we still haven't had somebody in the final of Wimbledon except for Milo, I guess, a couple of years later. So that, in a way, is maybe bigger than anything has happened. Whether Bouchard being in the final of Wimbledon is bigger than um, uh, Bianca winning the tournament in Indian Wells, it's hard to figure out, really. I think they're pretty close, actually. Uh, but winning a tournament, obviously, is winning a tournament, and that's different than being runner-up. But Wimbledon is Wimbledon, so um, that that was close. But really, the other thing about these guys is they're they're younger, and and so the, the future seems even brighter. So I think that's why maybe it's obviously stronger than it was uh, four or five years ago. 
Um, among all the, the great results so far that we've seen this year, is there one that stands out to you as being the most surprising amongst uh, the men and the, the women in Canada? Uh, well, you know, I had a chance when I was in Australia to, to be around Bianca a fair bit because there weren't many people, you know, watching her matches in the qualifying. And so I was interviewing her just right beside the court as soon as she came off the matches. So, I mean, I knew she was good. And I remember uh, when she played Osegue, I think in the first round of one, I, I walked away from the match with Jimmy Arias. And I remember he told me, geez, I really was impressed with all her variety. You know, she slices, she lobs. Um, she does a lot of things that most of the women players don't play do. And he was really impressed with her. So, I mean, that maybe helped me a little bit. But, I mean, obviously I'd seen how good she was. But the short answer is obviously Bianca winning Indian Wells. I mean, uh, beating you know many of the very best players in the world, winning uh, a tournament that's really um, in the top level of, of all the tournaments except for the Grand Slams. It was it came out of the blue and it was and then she deserved it. I mean, she just she beat everybody she played. She was better than everybody she played. There was no doubt about it. It's funny the first time we had you on the podcast, which I think was back in the fall, she was still ranked outside the top. 200 and and i was just re-listening a little bit to that podcast this morning missing the sound of your voice of course but also just checking how much has changed in that in that window it's just remarkable uh, isn't it how fast she shot up like she's kind of skipped so many steps to now get within the top almost 20 on the wta tour yeah well i don't know if i told the story back then but there there is a story of i guess it was 2000 two years ago in montreal in the in april canada played against uh, kazakhstan i think it was and um, it was Shvedova and um, Putin Seva. And, and Bianca, I think, lost 6-4 in the third to Putin Seva, who was 30 in the world. And she beat Shvedova, who was 50. And Louis Borfiga, who's the head of you know, tennis in Montreal, really the sort of the big boss of everything, a lot of experience, well into his 60s, was around Bjorn Borg because he comes from Monte Carlo. And he just, he's a very bright guy. Very, and he said at the time, after she played so well that weekend, she's going to win a Grand Slam. And a lot of us thought, oh boy, I mean, <laughs> that's really, oof, that's a bit, uh, maybe uh, maybe you'll regret those words someday. And so we thought about that, you know, sort of thinking, geez, and he's, he's a conservative guy. He's not a hot-headed guy. Right, right. And so we sort of thought, boy, he's, he's getting a little carried away here. And then obviously not. I mean, I mean it's amazing that he saw, well, yeah, we saw it too. We saw it, because I mean, actually you saw, I think it was last year when Canada played in Romania, uh, Sebov played and Zhao played. But, I mean, you could see that Bianca was the only one that could play with Begu, and I forget who the second uh, Romanian player was. I mean, she could play with them. I mean, she, she didn't look out of place on the court, whereas the other two players pretty well got overwhelmed by them. So, you know, there have been lots of little signs, but to, to do just so well um, is just pretty amazing. And actually it was sort of good in a way that she carried it over into Miami and winning three rounds there, even though she wasn't physically uh, at her best. But uh, it's, it's really very incredible. And now it's a, a much-deserved break for uh, Bianca Andreescu, who's still uh, resting and nursing that shoulder injury. But it's also fascinating now that uh, after what she's accomplished in this incredible hardcourt swing and winning Indian Wells, that uh, she's transitioning to clay. And uh, she's she said before that uh, clay can be one of her favorite surfaces. Um, now that she has had such a breakthrough to get this, uh, to this top 20, we, we know how open uh, the women's field can be, just seeing a different winner after different winner. Where does maybe Bianca slot in in terms of, of favorites as we enter the clay court season? Well, I don't think she's going to play until uh, Madrid and Rome. So she's only going to play those two events, and then she's going to have a week off. I suppose she could play, uh, what is it, Strasbourg, I think. And there's another tournament the week before the uh, the French. She could play maybe three if she t- took a, a wild card or went into that tournament. Um, so I, I think she can do really well. I think her game is, is perfect for clay. She's a really good athlete. She moves extremely well. She has all the shots. So there's no reason she shouldn't do well on clay. I'm just a little bit worried about this break. 
and the fact that she's had this sort of setback with the shoulder a little bit, that I don't think she can, I think it's expecting a lot for her to step back right on the merry-go-round and be exactly what she was at Indian Wells when she comes back in Madrid. I, I think it's going to be tough for her because um, she played so well and, you know, it's really hard to duplicate that kind of thing. Plus the other players will be gunning for her and who knows, maybe she has a loss or two, so she loses a bit of confidence. So I think it's going to be a little bit tricky for her, but I mean, I have total faith in how good she is and how good she can eventually be, maybe how good she can be in the next five or six weeks, or if it's not the next five or six weeks, it's the next two or three months. So, but like I said, I, I think we shouldn't expect too much when she comes back because it's a tall order to do what she's done in the immediate past. You are listening to the South Boss Slice. Our guest this week is Tom Tebbit of Tennis Canada. We'll continue on the clay because Monte Carlo is underway. And probably some eyebrows raised, I think, for Denis Shapovalov losing his first-round match there to Jan Leonard Struff. Are you a bit surprised about uh, how he played here, given how, how strong he was in Miami? Well, I don't think you can really compare the two because it's, it's Clay. And last year, I think he lost his first match to Sitsipas uh, at, at Monte Carlo, and he doesn't have that much experience on the clay. The only thing was, you know, he won the first set against Struff and, and was the better player. And Struff is not really that great a player. He, he's a big guy with a big serve. He's hit pretty big. But I, I think he's has a hard time being consistent. Otherwise, he'd be, you know, he's, what, 27, 28 or something, and he's ranked 45, and he's never been ranked much higher than that. So I, I just think he's a bit of a limited player and maybe a little bit guy who's not that good with the nerves and all that. And Dennis is definitely better than him. And I would have thought somehow that he could, you know, if he hadn't made so many unforced errors and, and played, let's face it, played very poorly, I think he could have waited for uh, Struff to maybe self-destruct a little bit. But he, he was just so off his game after he got to 3-2 up in the, in the second set. It was it was surprising, but you know he had the same thing happen last year, and then he did really well in Madrid, did well also in Rome. So I mean, there's lots of time for him to to get used to the clay and play better on. And we know he has such a great all-round game. There's no reason he shouldn't be able to play well on clay. I think we have to remember also it's just his 20th birthday today as we're recording this, and already he's achieved so much in in such a short amount of time, reaching three Masters, one thousands, uh, semifinals already at at this stage. Um, what are what are some important things that he's going to have to do off the court to sort of, you know, continue his development? I, I know he changed coaches recently, which you wouldn't normally expect after such a successful run in, in Miami. Yeah, well, I mean, I think his mother's his main coach, and it, I think it's always going to be tricky for somebody coming on board because she has so much history with him. She knows his game so well. So we'll see what happens uh, with Ad, Adriana Furivia. Um I mean, he, he goes back to the days when uh, Dennis won the Wimbledon Juniors, and even before that, he's been around a long time. I know him a little bit. seems like a really good guy. I'm really happy for him that he's back around the main tour because you get guys like that, like Casey Curtis with Milos, and you know he sees his player go on, and, and that's, that's it. But it's nice, at least for Adriano, that he's around Dennis now. He gets to go to Monte Carlo and hopes, hopefully you know, the rest of the next few months and, and sort of gets a chance to, to breathe the air of the, the high life in tennis. So we'll see how that works out. But, I mean, I, I just think Dennis Dennis has got to sort of uh, settle down a little bit, maybe maybe not be quite as aggressive, but that's just his nature. Um, but Rob Steckley told me in Indian Wells that he thought that at some point there was going to be a boom and Dennis was really going to take off. And, you know, he did really well in Miami, and I think there could be another one of those coming fairly soon. And certainly it could come when he gets onto the grass in, in six or seven weeks. If we move over now to uh, look at the women this week, Canada's Fed Cup team is over in uh, Czech Republic where they're up against a, a real juggernaut in terms of Fed Cup success with the Czechs having won six of the past 11 years. Although it's a very different-looking squad this week on, on both sides, really. Um, I was speaking with Gabby Dabrowski the other day, 
And I said, you know, what was your honest reaction after you realized Petra Kvitova and, and Karolina Pliskova wouldn't be there? And she said, you know what, it doesn't really matter because their, their B, C, D, or even E squad is a very talented group of, of women. How would you preview this, uh, this matchup between uh, who Canada is sending with, uh, with what the Czech Republic has out there? Well, if you look at it in a way, um, probably our, their, their best three players aren't there, Pliskova, Kvitova, and Siniakova, and our best three players aren't there in Bianca and uh, Jeannie Bouchard. Um, and uh, who am I forgetting? Fra- Francoise, maybe? Yeah, Francoise, yeah, because Francoise, Francoise uh, Bander won the key match um, in, in February in the Netherlands. I mean, I don't think if she hadn't won her match, I'm not sure we would have won that tie. We were going to win the two matches uh, that Bianca played. There was not much doubt about that, but it would have been tricky to lose the other two singles matches and the doubles, even though we ended up winning. It could have been different if it had actually been in play. So uh, we're missing our, our three best players. They're missing their three best players. Um, it's it's a bit surprising, really. It's very disappointing that, that you you've got haven't got the very best players there. Although Kudova didn't play the first round either, so I guess maybe she's not a surprise. But um, there is a chance for a format change for next year. It may may get to be a little bit more like the Davis Cup is. So this round may not be quite as important as you'd think, because if they change the format, then you won't, wouldn't have the eight-team world group, which was which, which is what uh, technically they're playing for this weekend. So we'll see if there is a change for next year, and maybe that's why the Czechs didn't play all their best players, because if they had been having the same format for next year, you'd think that after all the success, being the defending champions and having won six times recently, that they'd be making sure they got back to the, the world group because they haven't been out of the world group, I think, since 2008. So we'll, we'll see how it goes this weekend. But like I said, it may not be quite the same stakes you'd normally have if they change the format. And if they change the format, I think it would go more on ranking. And right now the Czechs are ranked number one, so they're in no danger of not participating if they change the format. And Canada's number 11, so I think Canada's in pretty good shape as well. So we'll see how it plays out if they make the change it does, isn't quite as important as it normally is if they don't make the change then uh, it'd be very interesting if Canada can get into the world group for next year one name I did want to ask ask you about who who is going and maybe it's a name that's not quite on the radar in terms of Canadian tennis but but likely will be is Layla Annie Fernandez she's still just 16 years old uh, but was in the finals of the Australian Open Junior Tournament uh, earlier this year is she going to be another one of these these young superstars that maybe we're following for years to come well, superstars is a big word, and uh, you know maybe we can we can toss it around with Bianca because uh, she has a track record. But uh, she's she's a very tenacious player. I sort of wouldn't be surprised if they played her because <clears throat> excuse me, there's only really three choices: Dabrowski, uh, Rebecca Marino, or Fernandez. So uh, in some ways, you, you toss in the young kid who's just gung ho and got nothing to lose, and maybe can scare the other team. So uh, be interested to see if they do play her. And she's a tenacious player. I saw her, um, you know, a bit at the Australian Open. Also saw her when she made the the final of the French Open juniors last year. Um, so she's she's pretty good on clay as well. She think she's been training in Florida, so she would have played on some clay there as well. So um, I think it's sort of you, I always sort of like the young player coming up and nothing to lose and, and kind of fearless. And so it might be fun if they throw her in there either with Dabrowski or with Marino. Um, when we look at, um, you know, regardless, I guess, of the result, I'm trying to say, um, between Canada and Czech Republic, it's got to be a pretty special moment for players like Rebecca Marino and uh, Sharon Fishman who took time off from the tour for various reasons and who are now uh, back again, uh, regardless of how things go, uh, how do you assess what this must mean for for those two players and and for their participation on the uh, Fed Cup squad? Well, Marina was in the Netherlands in February, and, and she was really thrilled to be back. I think it's one of the highlights of her being, being back playing again. So, And she got to play in the doubles, and they won that doubles match. And uh, she'll get another chance now 
maybe to play singles we'll see so no it's it's a big thrill for her it's been tough all those years not playing and then finally deciding to come back so being good enough to to play on the Canadian Fed Cup team I think is huge for her and the same thing for Sharon Fritchman she's had a lot of injuries I think a lot of it was foot and stuff and uh, she's 28 years old now she decides to come back and really make a go of it in, in doubles and she's done reasonably well so far so I think if, if somehow it came down to the doubles which is actually one of the drawbacks of the Fed Cup format because it's it's the very last match and in, in Men's Davis Cup the way it is now with the two day format it's the middle match so it's always going to mean something but being being the fifth match in Fed Cup it doesn't that, it very likely could not mean anything but if it did mean anything I suspect that she'd play with Dabrowski because both of them are pretty experienced playing doubles yeah they had a pretty good run back at the Rogers Cup I think it was back in 2013 where they upset the Italian world number ones at the time Sarah Arani and uh, Roberta Vinci um, so so they must have some chemistry too although it's it's going back a few years yeah, no, no. I'm, well, you know, the other thing is, I think any players who are good at doubles are going to be pretty good together. But it does help you you have played together before. So I, no, I think they'd be a they'd be a tricky team. Uh, I think Krejciova, uh, the the Czech player who's uh, number one uh, in doubles and won two of the Grand Slams, I think, last year. She's on their team, and actually Safarova's on their team too, which seems a little bit strange because she basically is retired. But uh, I suppose if she's there and she's playing a little bit, she's a very good doubles player as well. So they would have some pretty good doubles options as well. So it would be pretty tough if it did come down to that fifth match, but it would also probably be very interesting to watch. Yeah, not the names uh, maybe Canadians were expecting uh, for this Fed Cup tie-up coming uh, Friday to Sunday, uh, but you can watch Canada with Layla Annie Fernandez, who we mentioned, Sharon Fitchman, Rebecca Marino, and Gabby Dabrowski. Just a couple more questions, uh, Tom, about the clay court swing, uh, which we've now arrived upon. Uh, different storylines, I suppose, as, as we enter it. Uh, Roger Federer is going to make his return. We know Novak Djokovic on the men's side has won a few in a row, but Rafael Nadal has, has won 11 overall. And then the women's side, it's so hard to predict uh, who to favor. Are there any particular storylines you're, you're maybe most looking forward to uh, for the clay surface this year? Well, it's it's well. I'm, I'm very anxious to see Felix play on clay, actually, because uh, I know he likes clay. We know we all know he's played a lot on clay, played a lot of challengers. A lot of his apprenticeship the last couple of years has been on clay and been on European clay. So I think he's very comfortable there. So it's going to be fun to see him play. And if he wins tomorrow, I guess he he'll play uh, Zverev. Uh, Alexander Zverev, so that would be fascinating. And Zverev would come in, I think, after a loss last week that wasn't very good, and then also not having played in the first round because it was a bye. So it'd really be fascinating to see how Felix could do against him. So I'm looking forward to that. In terms of the big boys, uh, you know, it's going to be great to have Federer back playing in Madrid. He's done won the tournament there in the past. It's a different clay court tournament because of the altitude, so he could do well there. But I'm sort of a little bit skeptical. This seems a little bit more sort of farewell tour kind of feel to it. That, uh, but if you know if something happened to Rafa and and who knows what, maybe he'd have a chance to win the French Open, and that would be like I'm like a, a Tiger Woods story sort of thing. But <laughs> um, we'll, we'll have to see what happens. And Nadal is just just endlessly fascinating because it's you know the body breaks down every time he gets on a, a hard court, but it's like it's like he's a seven year old kid when he plays on clay or something. So it's hard to see him not doing well in the next few weeks, and it's hard to see him getting hurt or whatever, just because it really hasn't happened much in the past. Um, so that that'll be fun. And Joker. Which I guess is the big mystery, just coming in, not playing very well at Indian Wells in Miami and looking a little bit lost. So he starts tomorrow, I guess, against Cole Schreiber. So that'll be a first indication of how he's doing. And then there's team and, and you know, some of the, the young guys who maybe can, uh, you know, sort of show that they're getting closer to being able to knock off the top boys. And then uh, Simona Halep, of course, uh, still ranked uh, number two in the world and, and will be defending a French Open title. Uh, other names in the mix on the women's side, it's so hard to predict. Are, are there any names maybe standing out to you on, on that side of the tour? 
Well, I'm a little bit disappointed in the women, quite frankly, that uh, nobody stepped up. Uh, you know, Muguruza, uh, I mean, she she was dreadful in the match against Bianca, although Bianca played very well in the Indian Wells. Svitolina, you know, has shown signs in the past, but can she really do something? Um, Halep has been so-so this year. So it seems to me that, and, and we don't know about uh, uh, Osaka, what, whether, you know, split with the coach and she won the Australian Open and everything, but it's just sort of been a little bit shaky lately. So, I mean, actually, if Bianca got, got back into form and was playing well by the time the French Open started, I, I would put her in the top least in the top 10 or 12 favorites to win the, the French Open. So um, it's really hard to, to pinpoint somebody there. Um, I guess you'd have to see really how the clay court season goes. But even that, I guess, what's Fidelina? Didn't she win Rome last year? And then sort of <laughs> That's didn't, right. do, didn't do too well at the French Open. So I, I think it's just, you know, it's a bit of a bit of a crapshoot. We'll see which one of them is sort of playing well at the time. Um, and, and, well, Stone Stevens was in the final last year, and she hasn't been doing too well lately. So that's, you know, kind of strange. So really, I mean, there's an opening there. Like I said, if Bianca could get uh, back playing the way she was when before she um, left in Miami, it'd be fascinating to see how well she could do. And I certainly think she can get through. Um, she's going to be seated, so that's a big help. I certainly think she can get through two, two or three rounds, and then who knows what can happen after that. You definitely never know what you're going to get on the, the women's side, which is the, the opposite of what we know we're going to get when we uh, speak with you here on the podcast, Tom. So uh, thanks for joining us yet again. Uh, you know, you're the voice of, of Canadian tennis. And I have to say on a personal level, I've, I've always respected you for, uh, for allowing me to follow you into the good seats at the Rogers Cup when, uh, when you see an opening. So looking forward to that again uh, later in the summer. But for now, enjoy the clay court uh, swing. Have a safe trip over to Paris. And uh, we hope to talk to you again soon. Mike, don't give away any secrets. <laughs> <laughs> we'll edit that out. Don't worry for the uh, okay. final copy. All right, take care. Thanks. That was uh, Tom Tebbett, writer for Tennis Canada, voice of Canadian tennis, as you said. I like that uh, a lot. And it makes a good point about the w- women's side. I saw a fascinating uh, tweet just yesterday with Amanda Anisimova. We'll get to her, but she she won her first title we now have 18 different winners in a row on the WTA side over the last 18 tournaments. That's astonishing. That's insane, actually, you know, and, yeah. and at a certain point, look, I love the depth on the WTA tour and so do you. We're big proponents of what they've been doing the last couple of years and the new names that are, that are coming out and along with the, the veteran presences too. But at a certain point, I got to agree with Tom there, like, I, I want to see someone sort of step up, not necessarily and own the number one spot or be the dominant player, but you'd like to see someone sort of win at least, you know, a couple tournaments and get some, you know, a, a good head of steam going into the, the next Grand Slam of the year on some level, I think. Yeah, I think he's looking for some of these names. As you mentioned, Muguruza, someone who probably looked so fantastic a few years ago, has completely fallen off. Simona Halep uh, seems like a player good enough to kind of grab the bull by the horns, so to speak, and, and take over a clay court season. I, I'm not saying, you know, win, Nadal style win three tournaments in a row and then just own Roland Garros, but, you know, notch a couple titles on clay, show that, you know, you're in the top three for a reason. Naomi Osaka as well, two consecutive Grand Slams, but a little dip in form lately. Alina Svitolina, we know how talented she is. She's been kind of lingering in that top 10, but hasn't had the big results as well. I feel like there have been a handful of players who are getting consistently deep in tournaments, a few of the same names, but we're seeing completely different winners. Yeah, we got to have a repeat at some point. I mean, we're not going to get to what, like 30, 40 <laughs> tournaments <laughs> with 30 or 40 names. new winners, right? Exactly, so. exactly. So uh, it will be fascinating 
fascinating to see because I, I don't know that we have the specific type of clay court specialist maybe so much on the women's side, whereas if you venture over venture over to the men's side, I, th- I think you do have some of those players who you're like, wow, that, well, that guy is a clay court player. That That's where he's really going to make his hay, um, which is what we get a little bit more of. Fascinating Stefano Tsitsipas, who, who has spoken about, he was someone I thought was going to be a clay court specialist, and sure enough, he's an all-court player and, and another name to, to watch for on the surface. Uh, just back to Monte Carlo, because it is underway. Uh, we talked about Dennis Shapovalov's disappointing loss to Struff, um, but hopefully I think he's going to get his bearings on the surface and get going. Novak Djokovic, the number one seed here, Rafael Nadal, the number two. But if I'm looking to a favorite, I'm probably look, probably looking at the guy who's won the event 11 times and at one point had a stretch of 46 consecutive wins uh, at this event. Nadal and and Monte Carlo, he called it a love story. So uh, to me, he is kind of the number one going in here. But I'm curious to see what Djokovic does in this transition after a couple shaky events. Yeah, I mean, first of all, with with Rafa Nadal, you know, coming back to the tour after, you know, being injured in in Indian Wells and and transitioning on to clay. But if there's any tournament where he's going to, you know, find his groove again, it's going to be in Monte Carlo. And I'm just looking, his dominance has been to such a high degree that the only active other players that have won there are Novak Djokovic and, and Stan Wawrinka. Um, also, you know, he's won the last three in a row. And interestingly enough, if you look at the last three players he's beaten there, they're not your typical players maybe you'd expect to see in a clay court final uh, of that magnitude. Kane Shikori last year, uh, Ramos Vinolas the year before, and then Gael Monfils in 2016. I think that speaks to the fact that for a lot of players, making that transition from hard to clay court is is not something that is is really easy. Uh, obviously for Rafa, that, that hasn't been a, a problem at all. And last year, he was just absolutely unbelievable, not dropping a set en route to his title and absolutely destroying Dominic Team uh, six love six two, and at the time we were thinking, okay, well, if anyone's going to challenge Rafa, it's it's going to be Team, and uh, and Nadal just obviously uh, took that moment to reassert once again his uh, his prowess on the surface. So for me, it would be an absolute shock if if someone took him down. Uh, now Novak Djokovic, you mentioned, he does not have an easy draw here, and and it goes from his first match onwards playing against Philip uh, Kolschreiber, who beat him just recently on hard court. The two have pay, uh, paired off uh, three times before on clay court. Djokovic owns a two-to-one lead head-to-head on clay, but in each of those three matches, Kolschreiber has won the opening set. So he's given no- Novak trouble on the surface, and uh, he beat him at uh, Roland Garros in 2009 as well. So I don't think he's going to come in with any of that intimidation factor that other players might. And uh, and you can look uh, for us maybe at the rest of the draw for Novak, but it doesn't get much easier from from there on end. No, it certainly does not. And, and Cole Schreiber, uh, to his credit, will have that confidence from an Indian Wells win. As you said, I think his heavy topspin ball lends itself to the clay court surface. Uh, coming up, though, after Diego Schwartzman is another player really, really dangerous on the clay. Definitely his best surface. Stefano Tsitsipas, who I mentioned, is in that bracket as well. And then a couple other names. Maybe I, I'm pretty curious to see what they do on the clay court surface like a Karen Kachanov, but also Dominic Team as a potential semifinal for Novak Djokovic. Um, look, if, if we're looking comparatively at results over the past 12 months of who's who's uh, the top player, obviously Novak Djokovic is the best player in the world, but when we transition to this surface, I wonder where Dominic
Nick team actually is going to slot in. And I, I think he's going to answer some of those questions, hopefully in this event, because he should have a lot of momentum, even though it was a hardcore win, uh, getting that title at, at Indian Wells, I think should serve him really, really well. On the other side of the equation, Rafael Nadal, I don't see that many landmines for him here. Stan Favrinka potentially could give him trouble. He's won this event before. He loves the clay court surface. He's won the French Open before. He was actually in the finals of Roland Garros just a couple of years ago, which people uh, tend to forget. But uh, I, I look at the last two years of domination of Rafael Nadal uh, on the clay court surface, and I think anything short of an injury, uh, really, it's, to me, it's just if Novak Djokovic can get to maybe another level, uh, I, I really think he's the only guy who could take him down. Yeah, and for, for Rafa, it's the injury question. That's it for me as well. Yeah. Um, I still see him being at 32 years old, um, capable of dominating on this surface for, you know, maybe another uh, two, three, who knows how many years. Um, we've seen the guys, you've mentioned a few of them, who are going to, you know, be there after he does eventually uh, hang up the racket, Novak as well. Those are the Dominic teams, the Sasha Zverevs, uh, you know, and to go a little bit uh, younger as well, yeah, Sissipas and, and maybe some of our Canadian guys too. Yeah. Um, but it's funny, I was just thinking, when, when I was a kid, there were just like clay court grinders, like specific clay court guys that you did not want to face at this time of the year. You wouldn't see them for the rest of the year. You certainly <laughs> wouldn't see them on the grass court right. swing. They'd show up for some hard court events here and there to uh, take a paycheck, but get bounced pretty bad in the opening rounds. And we don't see that as much anymore. I think there's a lot more parity between surfaces. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if that's, you know, slower hard courts or faster clay courts or what the case may be. But I think people are evolving and realizing if you want to have success on the ATP Tour, uh, you've got to really be able to uh, to bring it on, on most surfaces now. Roger Federer actually brought this up. Uh, people took it as a slight to Novak Djokovic. It wasn't intended that way that he said now uh, in this current state of tennis, it is easier to... Uh, be able to win across all the surfaces in tennis because they are a bit more similar now than they were many years ago. And that I think clay and hard was a major transition in terms of how quickly or slowly the surfaces played, things are a bit closer in terms of those margins. So that's, you know, why someone like Novak Djokovic, obviously he's that incredible of a player, but someone who can make a transition from maybe winning on clay to winning on grass, which would be kind of unheard of if, if we went years back. Um, you know, the, there's not just the pure clay court specialist that we're used to. I think everybody uh, in this event uh, can produce wins on all surfaces, just perhaps better uh, than others. And we look at Rafael Nadal and he's been the absolute best on this surface and no one has really been anywhere near him. So we'll be curious to see if he could pick up a staggering 12th title. Uh, it's certainly feasible. And uh, to me, he is the favorite Canadian Felix Ojeali has seen he'll open his ha- uh, campaign against qualifier one Ignacio Loren- uh, Landero. That seems like a very winnable match. And Tom Tebbit was discussing uh, the likelihood of a match with Sasha Zverev. The thing that I like about this is I don't think Felix is going to be intimidated in the least. And Zverev has really been out of form this season. Yeah, I want to see this in a big way. And, and as much as we talk about parity across surfaces in Canada right now, if you had to pick one guy, you know, to focus on the uh, the men's tour, 
who uh, had an edge on clay, it would be Felix Auger-Aliassime. And, and I don't think we've ever truly had this outside of, you know, Daniel Nestor in, in the doubles world. Uh, this is very exciting for me to see a player like Felix who's so comfortable on clay and who purposefully plays on the surface as often as he seemingly can. Uh, I'm super stoked to see him, and I'm probably putting too many eggs in one basket here, and, and I do have a habit of jinxing players, so I, I apologize in advance. But um, I'd be really stoked to see him play against Zverev because what does he have to lose? Absolutely nothing. And what, what a huge sort of, you know, measuring stick against one of the greatest in the game right now uh, for Felix, who's just been skyrocketing through the rankings over the past couple months. It'll be very exciting. Uh, not that I'm expecting a win, but just to see how hard can he push him. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, look, he already had a clay court swing uh, of his own going to South America, which I think was really important for him, uh, reaching the finals of the Rio Open, quarterfinals of Sao Paulo. And you look back in his career when he was playing challengers, five of six challenger titles are on the clay surface. I think if anybody is probably feeling a lot of pressure in this matchup, it is Alexander Zverev knowing he has to get his game uh, together quickly or uh, suddenly that ranking is going to start rapidly dipping uh, because he's put together clay clay court results in the past. Uh, I believe it was the finals of Rome where he almost had Rafael Nadal on the brink there. Uh, And certainly expectations uh, are are high for him. Even if he's not yet 22 years old, Uh, the pressure is going to certainly start building uh, because he has not done much uh, of anything since winning the end of year title last year. So we'll see what transpires in that match. As as you said, nothing to lose for Felix Ojeali-Asim. It should be Zverev, uh, the one who's feeling the pressure there. Uh, and we're going to see Felix also, I should say, uh, in, in doubles as well. Him That's and Dennis, right. even though Dennis is out of the singles, we're going to see the two of them uh, reunite in doubles. Haven't seen it since uh, Davis Cup earlier this year. And mm-hmm. for those of us in Toronto, we got to see them play together last summer against uh, Djokovic and Kevin Anderson, which was pretty cool. Uh, these guys are good buds off the court. They've got chemistry on the court, and that's just going to further develop as they, you know, emerge in these uh, early years of their professional career. I'm really excited to see, uh, you know, how that doubles pairing sort of grows because Davis Cup, you know, we've still got uh, Milos and Vashik there when he's healthy, obviously. Yep. And, and Vashik to me is sort of the natural, uh, you know, successor to Daniel Nestor on the Fed, or Fed Cup, on the Davis Cup team in terms of, of doubles presence. But down the road, I think it's almost a foregone conclusion. We're going to see Felix and Dennis playing together. And so, uh, you know, good for them to to team up and and have some fun together. And and let's see what they can do here. Yeah, definitely. I I think these doubles uh, matches and and taking that side of the the tournament is often done in good fun. But uh, it's also great experience for for both of them. And you get a good combination there of the uh, lefty and the right-hander on the surface uh, can pose some problems always. Uh, We don't have Milos Raonic and Monte Carlo. And for me, I think this is for the best. Uh, I think he should be playing a very limited clay court season. And I'm sure that's the plan. Uh, Obviously, he has to stay healthy and he wants to peak for the grass court season. Uh, Wimbledon is going to be his best chance to make a really deep run at a Grand Slam tournament. So uh, in my eyes, a nice soft schedule on clay. Get yourself ready and play Roland Garros and keep the body healthy. There's no need to play this. Yeah, I don't know what his current status is, but obviously he's not here in in Monte Carlo. Last year, he only played two events on clay, didn't play Roland Garros. Uh, I mean, he made the quarters at the French Open back in, I want to say 2014, I believe, but that was his his only time making it that deep at, at that Grand Slam. So I totally agree with you that that for him, uh, you know, 28 years old and uh, hopefully he's still got many good years ahead of him. But with the number of injuries he's had, you know, you know really year to year, he's just got to be very careful and maximize his chances for a grand slam. 
And if that's going to happen, the one where it still is, you know, the most likely would be, well, the one that he's made the finals at before would be on grass. So, yeah, he's got to do absolutely everything in his powers to make sure he's 100%, not just 80%, but 100% fit yeah. for the short grass court swing that uh, that begins in June. Yeah, that's right. And uh, he's still sitting uh, 15th in the rankings. The way we speak better doesn't feel like he's... Uh, Canada's best player on the men's side, but he still is. It's funny. He's kind of forgotten about in a sense, right? But yeah, he's still the highest ranked. And even if he wasn't the highest ranked because of, you know, injuries or whatnot, to me, he is still the guy that I would pick in a big match for Canada. I just wonder how he feels about seeing Dennis and Felix come along and have their success. And I'm sure it's mostly very supportive and, and a typically Canadian kind of, kind of vibe going on there. But if it were me, I mean, he was the male player of the year in Canada between 2011 and 2016. And now he hasn't had it the last two years. There's got to be a part of him that's saying, Hey, you know what? I still want to show these kids. I still want to show Canada that, uh, you know, don't forget about me. I've got a lot I can still do in my career. Yeah, that's right. And look, uh, he's had the best run at any Grand Slam so far in 2019. He was the one who really did damage at the Australian Open, reaching the quarterfinals there in such a difficult draw. And I, I think one element that we get from Milos Raonic is some sense of reliability tournament after tournament. We're seeing more early round exits like the one in Monte Carlo for Denis Shapovalov, which is obviously the growth of a, a player who's now just turned 20 and sort of the ebbs and flows of a season as a young player trying to navigate it and, and be a bit more consistent. I think we have that consistency and reliability from Milos Raonic for the most part when he plays that he generally gets fairly deep in tournaments and, and you're really just relying on that body not breaking down. Yeah, and he's also, you know, what Milos has going for him is he's he's a very, very much a professional athlete. You yes. know, the way he goes about his business, I know some people like to critique it, say, oh, he's boring or awkward or, or what have you. Hey, he's a professional athlete. He puts his tennis first. There have been no scandals over the years with Milos Raonic. You know all. what I mean? He's a good role model involved in charitable uh, things outside of the sport. I think for Dennis and Felix, he's someone to uh, to look up to, yep. both for his on-court results and, and abilities, but also just how you carry yourself uh, off of the court. Yeah, definitely. Uh, should note that we do have uh, some Fed Cup semifinals upcoming on the WTA side. France will take on Romania. That is on the clay court surface and hard courts. Australia will be taking on Belarus in Australia. I want to make mention as well of Amanda Anisimova, uh, breakthrough win for the 17-year-old in Colombia this past week. A smaller international event, but still very impressive. She beat Astra Sharma in the finals. And she had never won a WTA-level match on clay prior to this, which is equally, if not more, impressive. Uh, look, she's, she hasn't produced the season that Bianca Andreescu is, has, uh, but she's another teenager, maybe in that same mold, who's one of these rising superstars. Round of 16 in Australia was absolutely incredible, and uh, she's now the youngest player in the top 100. I, I think this is another name uh, that we're going to be hearing, of, hearing about for years to come. Yeah, undoubtedly. I mean, she's sort of the, the American equivalent of what we've been uh, sort of enjoying here in Canada and looking forward to in Canada. She actually had some, some earlier uh, successful results on the WT Tour, even before Bianca. So last year when, when Amanda was 16, she had some, some pretty solid results too, beat some decent uh, players, and you could tell good things were coming. So both south of the border and up here, we've got a couple of uh, young females to look forward to watching. And and I've said it before, I love the Canada-U.S. Uh, rivalry in other sports. Yep. I would love to see that transition to tennis. And on the female side, looking forward to seeing their first uh, matchup as WTA professionals between uh, Anisimova and, uh, and Andrea.
Andreescu as well. Yeah, that'll be fantastic. And I think we already have that budding rivalry, hopefully on the men's side, say between Denis Shapovalov and a young Francis Tiafo, who recently played in Miami. Uh, rivalries are always fantastic. Thank you so much to Tom Tebbit for joining uh, the Southpaw Slice. And remember, you can find us on Twitter at Southpaw underscore Slice. Find me at Ben Lewis, SN590. Find Mike at Pro Tennis Fan. And enjoy the action from Monte Carlo. We'll talk to you next week.